You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Very important theological passage with a very practical message here tonight. The emptying of the Son of God, Philippians 2. All right, well, we've been studying the book of Philippians for several weeks now, and you remember the, the opening parts of this letter, it's Paul talking about himself, his circumstances, how things are turning out for the progress of the, um, the mission that God has sent him on. And this, we've talked about this is a book about happiness, about how to have happiness. And we see Paul having happiness even in the midst of a, a time in prison. But at a certain point, Paul says, okay, enough about me, let's talk about you. And he begins to address some painful things happening in this church. They were under a lot of suffering, they were under a lot of pressure, and the result that was having was they were attacking one another, as is so often the case when we're suffering, we take it out on the people around us, sometimes the people we love the most. And Paul, we saw last time we studied Philippians, he ended with this extremely powerful vision, this exhortation for how they were to treat one another. He says, do nothing at all, ever, from selfishness or from empty conceit. Yes, that word is uh, empty, uh, literally empty glory. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Yes, when we try to grab all I can get for me, when I look out mainly for my interests, we might get a glory, but it's an empty glory. It's a fading glory. It's, um, it's something of my own making. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And he's He's assuming we're looking out for our own personal interests. This is not a call to make sure you look out for yourself. No. He's saying you, you of course, naturally look out for yourself and your own personal interests. Turn some of that attention to others. How can I look out for the interests of others? How can I put others first? How can I listen better? How can I think about their needs? How can I lay my life down for them? And, you know, this is what God wants for your life, this right here. This is the heart of all of the law and the prophets is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love one another. But it's kind of easy sometimes to think, well, God, I mean, here you are, you're up there in heaven. You're, you're telling us how we should lay our lives down for one another. But, you know, I mean, what do you know about that? You know, it's like a rich person advising a poor person how to deal with their poverty. It's like someone who's never suffered trying to tell you who suffered a lot how to deal with the suffering in your life. But what we see is that God has not just stood from afar and barked orders. No, he's come and he's demonstrated. He's demonstrated this very attitude. And that's what verse 5 says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so what we have is a theological passage with a very practical application. Let's see what he says. He says, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, a thing to be used for his own advantage. He didn't use his position of privilege for his own advantage. And one thing, the first thing I want to point out here is that Paul brings up here the, the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, that Jesus was fully God. He says he existed in the form of God. He, he says Jesus had a quality with God, and this is the historic teaching of the Christian faith, that God is one in essence, and yet he exists as a trinity. As he's one in essence, three in person. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And these three have perfect unity, perfect equality with each other. All are fully divine. 
And they have existed in love relationship with each other long before the beginning began, from eternity past. And so Jesus is fully God. And, you know, Paul is not arguing here for the deity of Christ. He's just assuming the deity of Christ, that everybody knows that in his audience, in order to make this very practical point. Yeah, you know, there's this, this fiction out there. You watch the History Channel or whatever. Um, and I, I like history, but, you know, when they run specials on Christ, it usually is like, well, you had Jesus the man, and then over the next hundred years, the legend grew, and he became the Christ, the Messiah, the divine. But no one, he, he was not that way at first. Well, here we have just a few decades after the death of Christ. Paul is just saying, of course, we all know Jesus was fully God. He, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he's just assuming that. Now, the deity of Christ is under assault today. You know, back in biblical times, they actually had a harder time with the humanity of Christ. They couldn't believe that God would put on human flesh because they thought flesh was like evil and gross and, and God would not do that. Whereas now, we actually have to make a case for this. And you can see, I could cite a hundred verses here. I'm not going to do that. The deity of Christ, though, you know, you see scenes like this in the Gospels where Jesus forgives a guy's sins. And his opponents say, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, I know. That's the point. Or just later in the same chapter in Mark 2, Jesus just kind of changes some stuff about the Sabbath, and they're questioning him. And Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even over the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath was something God came up with, that God instituted 1,500 years before and now Jesus is just allowed to change it. He claims full authority over it. He's equating himself with God. I and the Father are one. How about that? John 10, 30. There's a pretty clear statement of the unity of the Father and the Son. At the end of Jesus' life, after his resurrection, the apostle Thomas falls to his knees in worship and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus receives his worship, something that not even angels would do. When we see this in the Bible, no mere man would, would receive worship, and yet he receives worship as my Lord and my God. And so this is unpacked also very clearly in the epistles in many different places, such as Colossians 2.9, where it says, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Again, it doesn't get any clearer than that. You know, one argument for the deity of Christ that I think is not, maybe not well known enough, is the argument from the titles of God. You see, in the Old Testament, there are these different titles that are exclusively reserved for Yahweh. Yahweh was God's personal name that he revealed early in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus starts taking these titles for himself. Let me give you three quick examples out of the couple dozen there are. Yahweh is the judge, all right? Like in Psalm 94, too, it says, "'Rise up, O judge of the earth,' But then Jesus comes along in John 5, and he says, actually, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. Well, so which one is it? Is God the judge, or is Jesus the judge? And the answer is yes, both. Jesus is God. Let's see another one. Yahweh is the shepherd, Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd. I have all that I need. His loving leadership in our lives. But then Jesus comes along in John 10 and says, actually, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So who's the shepherd? Is it God or is it Jesus? And the answer is yes. 
What about this one? Yahweh is the great I am. This is how he reveals himself early in the Old Testament, his first encounter with Moses. Moses says, what, what should I tell him your name is? And he says, mm, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Which would be grammatically incorrect unless his name was actually I am. But then Jesus comes along, and you know, I mean, what God is saying here is he's saying I, his self-existence. He always has been. He always will be. He exists, not dependent on anyone or anything else, but purely as an aspect of his very nature. Then Jesus comes along and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they once again picked up stones to kill him. They knew what he was laying down here. Jesus is, I am. Yahweh, I am. Jesus is God. But then we run into some problems with the deity of Christ. Think about some of these attributes of God. They seem pretty incompatible with humanity. God is eternal, for one. Isaiah 43, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No end, no beginning. And then we crack open our New Testament, and it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, that doesn't sound very eternal. That sounds like a beginning point. He did have a beginning point. He was born in Bethlehem. God is self-existent, dependent upon no one else. He calls himself the I Am. And then we read the Gospels, and it says Jesus got hungry. He needed some food. Well, that doesn't sound very self-existent. God is immaterial. God is not a physical form. It says very clearly in the Scriptures, God is spirit. But then John tells us, the Word, referring to God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. That sounds awful fleshy, materially. doesn't sound very immaterial at all to me. God is omnipotent. The prefix omni means all, potent, powerful. He can do anything. I'm Yahweh, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? Yeah, nothing's too hard for Yahweh. It's Jeremiah 32, 27. And it's a good thing to have a God that's all powerful. And then we crack our Gospels open, and it says Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. Well, if he's God, why couldn't he do it? If he's all powerful... It's not very omnipotent. He's omniscient, all-knowing. Great as our Lord, abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite, Psalm 127.5. You know, as it says in Isaiah 40, who has understood the mind of the Lord that they should be his counselor? But then Jesus, when he's talking about the end of the world and when it's going to happen, he says, nobody knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not the angels in heaven or even the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Well, that's not very omniscient. He doesn't know something, but God knows everything. How could he be God? Omnipresent. God can manifest his presence at all places, at any time. He can, be, he, can be, he can be present in two places at once. He's not answering this guy's prayer, then rushing to the other side of the world to you know, deliver somebody who blocked their keys in their car or something. I don't know. No, he can be present in all these places at once, personally, fully present. 
He doesn't get just, he's not like divided attention, okay? I can never get away from your presence, Psalm 139.7. But then Martha's brother dies and she says to Jesus, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus obviously was not present there. He was only present in one place in any given time and some bad things happened in her opinion because he wasn't there. And finally, Jesus, you know, God is untemptable. As it says, God cannot be tempted by evil, James 1.13. And then it says, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, Jesus is not God. So, you know, Jesus, he's, he had a beginning point. He's not eternal. He gets hungry and thirsty. He's not self-existent. He's fleshy, so he's not immaterial. There's things he can't do. There's stuff he doesn't know. There's places he can't be. And he, can, he was tempted in every way. You can see why some take this as an inherent contradiction within Christianity. They say the incarnation to, to put on flesh, incarnate. It's, it's illogical. It's incoherent. They reject Christianity for this very reason. Well, thank God for Philippians chapter 2. Because this, and passages like it, are where we find the resolution of this apparent contradiction. You know, the humanity of Christ, think about it, what it requires to be a human. You know, humans live in a fallen world and can sin. This is something he wanted to do. This is something he did. He lived in a fallen world and he was tempted in every way. Humans have a human body by definition. We are spirit and flesh. We have dual nature. That means we have to breathe and eat, which Jesus did. We need restroom breaks. With Jesus, I mean, we don't have biblical record of this, but it must have happened. It must have happened, like probably every day, maybe multiple times a day. Um, it sounds almost sacrilegious to talk about Jesus as having to go, but he did. He had to sleep. He grew, it says. He had to grow up. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn his letters and his words. Even though he invented language, and he is the living word, he had to learn to speak. Humans are able to die, and Jesus died. Didn't just pretend to die, he really died. And we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit for our source of strength, and that's it's apparently what Jesus did. But it's, it's hard to see how these two could fit together. It seems like something's got to give if you've got God and his attributes and humans and their attributes. And what Philippians tells us is how the man Jesus could be fully God. Yes. Remember, it says he existed in the form of God. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then it says Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Yes, he emptied himself. Remember earlier we talked about empty glory that we strive for. Jesus really emptied himself. You know, this is to pour oneself out. It's like water being poured out of a pitcher. You know, theologians refer to this. This, this word empty is kanao, and, and the, the noun form is kenosis. That's the Greek term. They, they talk about the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. Jesus poured himself out, like pouring the water out of a pitcher. You know, we, it's like, you know, we've got our little thing and we can hold on to it or we can 
we can pour out. And that's what he did. What did he empty himself? What does this mean? Theologians debate this, but he must have given up some things. For one, he temporarily gave up the perfect environment. We know he left heaven. Here he is, enthroned in heaven, the king of glory, king of kings and lord of lords. And he chooses to leave that perfect environment into a very imperfect environment, a broken world. And not, not like the top of the broken world, like the bottom of the food chain in this broken world. He left his position as ruler. He didn't come as the king of the world the first time. He will the second coming. But he came as a poor peasant, a nobody. Isaiah says, you know, there was nothing about him that looked special. He was like a root out of parched ground. Didn't even think anything could grow there. And a root springs up. A plant springs up. You know, he was a, he was a minority, an oppressed minority, in an oppressed part of the world, and part of an oppressed people, who would eventually be killed by the powers that be. He gave up the use of most of his divine attributes. And this is important. He didn't give up his divinity, otherwise he wouldn't be God anymore. But he did give up the use of most of his divine attributes, those different attributes on that previous screen that we talked about. He gave up the use of those voluntarily for a time. You know, um, think about an example like basketball. You know, imagine LeBron, LeBron James has like a, you know, he goes back to Akron, his hometown, and he's got like a meet LeBron day at the local middle school, right? And, you know, five lucky middle schoolers will be picked to play at a basketball game with LeBron James. And, you know, he's going to take it easy on those kids, right? He's going to lay aside the use of his supreme basketball attributes for the sake of having a game with the kids, you know? And, like, he might occasionally, you know, like throw one down or whatever. But for the most part, he's going to kind of condescend down to their level. It's not that he can't, he can't do it anymore, it's just that he's voluntarily laying aside the use of those because there's something more important at stake here. Or you think about, um, you know, like the three-legged race. Do you guys ever do those like in uh, field day in elementary school or whatever where you're like, you got, you got you, know, two, you know, one leg is tied to another person's leg, so there's, you know, kind of three legs, right? Hence the name of the race. <laughs> you know, you could take the fastest person in the world, the fastest sprinter in the world, but if he... If he's running a three-legged race with me, he's going to be considerably slower in that race. Like, like the best hope is I just kind of gla- grab on, you know, and let him run. I, I, we'd have to kind of figure out what, what our best strategy would be there. But, you know, the point is it would be slower. He doesn't lose his sprinting attributes. He just temporarily lays aside the use of them because there's something more important like a three-legged race competition. You ever heard of this guy, Dick Hoyt? He's a marathoner. He died just a couple weeks ago. And um, the reason why he is so famous is because he did not run alone. No, he ran with his son, Rick Hoyt. These guys were Team Hoyt. This is a picture of them from Sports Illustrated 2011. And their story is fascinating. It says Rick was born in 1962 to Dick and Judy Hoyt. As a result of oxygen deprivation to Rick's brain at the time of his birth, Rick was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Unable to speak, unable to walk. Until he got a speech computer, he could not communicate. 
It says, Dick and Judy were advised to institutionalize Rick because there was no chance of him recovering and little hope for Rick to live a normal life. But they didn't. This was just the beginning of Dick and Judy's quest for Rick's inclusion in community, sports, education, and one day, the workplace. It says, in the spring of 77, so Rick was 15, he told his father he wanted to participate in a five-mile benefit run for a lacrosse player who had been paralyzed in an accident. So his dad, far from being a long-distance runner, agreed to push Rick in his wheelchair like a good dad, and they finished all five miles, and they came in second to last in that race. Get this, though. Later that night, it says, Rick told his father, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. And that will resonate with the heart of a father. Dick switched into full dad mode. This realization was just the beginning of what would become over a thousand races completed, including marathons, duathlons, triathlons. Six of those were Ironman competitions. You know what an Ironman is? It's where you swim 2.4 miles, and Dick did it with a vest, a bungee cord attached to Rick in the boat. Then you get out and you bike 112 miles. Rick did it, sorry, Dick did it with a special two-seater bicycle with his son in one of the seats. And then you run a marathon. And they had like, eventually they had a special running wheelchair for that. Initially it was just a wheelchair. Six of those. Plus, marathons, duathlons, other triathlons. Also adding to their list of achievements, Dick and Rick biked and ran across the U.S. in 1992, completing a full 3,735 miles in just 45 days. Incredible. And just the pictures of these guys. I mean, here they are. This is their final marathon, the Boston Marathon 2014 with Team Hoyt. By this time, they had like a whole posse, you know. Um, Here he is picking his son up after the swimming leg of one triathlon, loading him into the bike for the next part of the triathlon. As you reflect on this story, what strikes me is this. You know, Dick did not lose any of his strength or speed or endurance, any of those attributes by adding Rick to the race. No, instead he willingly chose moment by moment to carry along another person. And why would he do such a thing? What would motivate him to do this? It was his great love for his son. That's why he did it. And you couldn't stop him from doing it. You know, you think there was more or less honor for Dick because of the choices that he made. To empty himself. To consider another's needs more important than his own. More honor. And we're talking about him here now, right? became famous not because he was the fastest marathoner, but because of this right here. Do you think there was more or less happiness for him by making the choices that he made to lay down his life for another? I bet there was more happiness. I bet there was more. Instead of focusing on how to shave another few seconds off his mile time, no, he was focused on someone more important, his son. Like it says in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's, that's what we see here. And this, this is what we see in the Incarnation. Because of Christ's great love for us, He laid aside the use of His divine attributes temporarily because there's something even greater. He was emptying Himself for another, for us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it this way. He says, The second person in God, the Son, became human Himself. He was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stones, which is like pounds in Britain. They just have stones over there. <laughs> they can't afford pounds. <laughs> it's the pounds of the money, so that's, there you go. Um, expensive. <laughs> the eternal being who knows everything and who created everything, the whole universe. He became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus in a woman's body. Yeah, like the one who created the, the heavens and the earth, implanted in the uterine lining of a 14-year-old girl in Palestine 2,000 years ago. If you want to get the hang of it, think, how would you like to become a slug? or a crab. Not real exciting. The result of this was that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be. For the first time, we saw a real human. One tin soldier, a real tin just like the rest, had come fully and splendidly alive. It's pretty hard for us to grasp this. I think that You know, while some people have a hard time with the deity of Christ, I think we tend to downplay the humanity of Christ. And we do it to our detriment. By downplaying his humanity, we downplay the sacrifice he made, the the humbling of himself, and we fail to grasp the true Christ. And we've created a Christ of our own imagination. You know, you you look at the medieval paintings, right? How do you know which one's Jesus? He's the one with the glowing head, right? For example, this one here, right? So there's the head glow. Like, it's not enough that he's carrying a cross. We better give him a glowing head just to make sure they know this is Jesus. Or what about this one? He's always got like the kind of, you know, the thing with the the hand. I don't know what's up with his left eye. It's like a bionic eye or something. Or this is maybe my favorite. Here we have Mary with her little, her little balding man child, and he's got like the, the seven lightning bolts coming out of his head. Can you see those red bolts? And of course the crown, and then his face is lit up with the light of the divinity of Christ. His head was not doing that, all right? He was not balding at that age either, I'm sure of it. Uh, here is Jesus as a boy. You better give him a glowing head just to make sure that they know which one he is. <laughs> we'll give like his parents a little, little mini halo, but he gets the glowing head. This one, they went with more of like a, like a kite of glory strapped to the, <laughs> the back of his head, and they like beat him with the ugly stick too here. <laughs> I don't know how you draw that ugly, but it's bad. <laughs> Uh, black and white, no problem. We'll just make the head thing bigger. 
That's not what he looked like, okay? There was no glowing head. That was the one time he glowed, okay? The, the transfiguration. I'll give you that, but that was the exception rather than the rule. That was him showing his, his, his glorified state. Now, Jesus, he truly became a human. And we're always trying to take the humanity out of the incarnation. Max Lucado says, angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with Him. The angels were shocked by this. They'd only ever seen God the Son in His glorified state. They'd seen Him on His throne since, you know, back when He was creating the universe. And now He's doing what? He's being disrespected in this way? He's suffering and He doesn't need to do this. And yet here He is getting his diaper changed. Here he is, playing whatever they played back in the streets back then, before they had soccer. (laughs) Had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons, (laughs) he would have been in for a surprise. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. Yeah, he would have gone through puberty, okay? One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clear the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. But this is exactly what he did. He became fully human. He went from his glorified state down, down, down where we are. An act that we could not even imagine how how great the limitations were that he took. And so you see kind of this elevator down, down, down. We, we saw he existed in the form of God, and then he took the form of a slave, a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He did not come to earth as a great man. And then it says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, he was killed. That's how far down he went, but he went even further. Not just any death, but the worst death you can imagine. Death on a cross. The cross. They didn't even like to talk about the cross in polite company because it was so gross. It was so horrifying. It was so humiliating. It was so painful. They couldn't think of any worse way to kill people. That was the cross. And Jesus went to the cross, the criminal's death, the death of of nudity, of shame, of public disgrace. We've got to let this sink in. He went down, down, down from the form of God to death on a cross. Successive steps in these three verses. But it kind of makes sense. Remember what Jesus was always talking about, his most repeated teaching? Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. 
You know, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Not so with you, for even, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Happy are the, the humble, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. If you want to be great, become the least. If you want to become first, become last. Again and again and again. He said this over and over. And this is what he did. We see the New Testament writers pick up on this as well. Look at 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Do you see the relationship there? That he may. The one has to happen so that the other can happen. At the proper time. We always think now is the proper time. But God says, no, I know when the proper time is. And he says, humble yourself so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And so we see, even here in this passage, the same linking words. Linking the descent of verses 6 through 8 with the exaltation of verses 9 through 11. He says in verse 9, the hinge here, for this reason also. For what reason? Because of the down, 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 down. He made himself last. This was the greatest act of emptying, the greatest act of humility that has ever been done. You know, Jesus, he's not exalted to the highest place because of some, like, divine nepotism, like he's the son and he just knew a guy. No. It's because there's never been a greater act of lastness, and so there will never be a higher first. Look at what it says. Look at his rise back up here in this big divine U-turn. For this reason also, first, God highly exalted him. He raised him, resurrected him from the dead. And then he raised him. There was the ascension from the earth into the heavens. And then there there was the, the coronation, the setting him on the throne, far above, as Ephesians says, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Up, 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 up. And he bestowed on him. The name. Which name? You might be wondering. He goes on to say, the name which is above every name. No higher name. So that at the name of Jesus, up further, every knee will bow. Which knees am I referring to? Paul tells us. Every knee of those who are in heaven and all the knees on earth and all of the ones under the earth. That would be all knees, okay? <laughs> Three different locations there, by the way. You're, you're all on earth right now. The other two, will, one of those will be your final destination. In heaven or under the earth. Heaven or hell. There is no middle ground later. You get to occupy two, exactly two of these three. And what Christ has done is he's made it possible for you to go to heaven because, of, because he came down we can go up to heaven. Every knee will bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, assumingly heaven on earth, under the earth, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then it goes one step even further to the glory of God the Father. Because the Son is always pointing the glory back to the Father. The Father glorifies the Son, but then the Son points the glory back to the Father. That's how it works. 
So there, visually, is the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. And you know, Paul here, he's not, he's, he's not just making all this up from scratch. He's actually quoting the Old Testament. A passage in Isaiah 45. I just want to read a few verses from it. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, writes, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is God speaking. And he says, turn to me and be saved. It's that simple. It's not do a bunch of works, be perfectly righteous. No, just turn to me. That's all you have to do. Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you could be saved, so you could be cleansed. And we just need to turn to him, place our faith in Jesus. And we will be in heaven with him forever. I am God and there is no other. And then he says, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in integrity a word that will not be revoked. He's really gearing up for something here. God doesn't often talk like this. What is he saying? I've sworn, I've uttered it in integrity. It's a word that will not be revoked. What is he talking about? What's he about to say? Don't you want to know? To me, God says, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Huh. This must be one of those passages that in the Old Testament was about Yahweh, and now in the New Testament we find out it's about Jesus. Exactly. To me, he says, and he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And I want you to just to think about, when he says every, he means every. And some will bow as enemies of Christ. They will bow with the regret, with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. They will, it will be like the football player who's just dropped the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, and he looks up at the clock and sees there's no time left on the clock, and we've lost, and I've blown it. And some will bow reluctantly as defeated and wrong. And some will bow as though this is the sweetest thing that's ever happened and this is the thing I've oriented my whole life around and I've been waiting for this. And I've done this many times before the return of Christ and now is the great announcement of him and the revelation of his glory. And when it says every knee, he means every knee. This is every politician who's ever existed. Biden, Obama, Trump, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and then I think Clinton before that Bush. Every one of them bowing and confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. This is every famous singer. This is every famous movie star. This is every famous athlete. You know, Michael Jordan, LeBron, Draymond Green. Every knee will bow. Every famous historical person, every famous author, every, every person from history, Hitler, will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Napoleon will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, uh, the prophet Muhammad, Buddha, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Pontius Pilate, Herod the Great, will bow before Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are no exceptions. The only difference will be 
when we get to that point, what will your relationship with Christ already be? Every single person that you know will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about that. Let that sink in. Is there anything you could do now for some of those people so they can be on the right side of this? And you, you yourself will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. You can say, no, I'll never do that, but it's going to happen someday, and you're going to remember tonight. He may remind you of this passage that you heard. The question is, how will you do it? Will you do it as friend or foe? I hope it's his friend. Two lessons from the humility of Christ. First of all, we need Jesus to teach us how to humble ourselves and regard others as more important than ourselves. You know, it's this question here. Will you strive for empty glory for yourself or will you empty yourself for others and allow God to exalt you at the proper time? As I've been studying for this, I feel like God has just been pointing out to me how selfish I am. And the difference between me and Jesus. I guess that's good. I guess the first step is admitting you have a problem, right? (laughs) But man, the way I think is a far cry from his, from his attitude. We need to let, we need to just turn our eyes upon Jesus and let let the way he is sink in. We will become like him as as we look into his glory here. And secondly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's just a fact. So, the question is, will you turn to him now and be saved? You can do that. It's not about works. It's about receiving a free gift. It starts starts with humbling yourself. It's the humility to say, I can't do it. I need a handout. And as Jesus said, the last will be first. That act of humility, that act of faith will result in God raising you up and glorifying you and seating you on nearby throne with him someday. Yes, Lord, we just stand in awe of your love, power, wisdom. You love us so much. And you've shown that through your son, through the cross. Lord, we, um, we want to imitate this kind of love we need your power in order to do that. We can't do this on our own. God, we, we want to be a community full of people that are considering the other person's needs more important and are laying down our lives for each other like, you, like Jesus taught us to do. And Lord, I, I'm thankful too that you've given us an opportunity to come into your family now, Lord, um, so that we can spend eternity with you, God. If there's anybody here who never has, has come and, and and bow before you, Lord, and, and come with the empty hands of faith. I, I pray they would do that tonight. I pray that they would get onto the right side of this whole cosmic thing that's going on, God. And I pray that they would enjoy a relationship with you for all of eternity. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.